Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On March 19th, Lighthouse hosted Inside the Writer's Studio with Michael Ndache, award-winning author of The English Patient. Inside the Writer's Studio invites nationally known, best-selling authors to stop by for a thought-provoking, inspiration-inducing visit. Andache, author of 13 poetry collections and six novels, joined Lighthouse instructor William Haywood Henderson on stage at East High School for a free-ranging conversation about writing, followed by an audience Q&A. My name is Michael Henry, and I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Writer's Studio with Michael Andache. And thanks for coming to East High. Yes, let's give it a round of applause. Okay, so here's how the studio will go. If you're new to the studio, if you're new to the studio, raise your hand. All right, welcome, excellent. Here are the rules. <laughs> William Haywood Henderson, our interlocutor, will introduce Michael Andache, who will then read from his work. Following that, they'll both sit down for a conversation about pretty much anything. You know, any fr anywhere from the writing craft to Billy the Kid to how to defuse a bomb. Eventually, we'll open it up to questions from you, when that time comes, feel, please feel free to approach the microphones set up in the aisles. So, without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce today's interviewer. William Hayward Henderson, we call him Bill at Lighthouse, grew up in Colorado and Wyoming. He received a BA in English from the University of California at Berkeley and an MA in English from Brown University. He was a Wallace Stegner Fellow in Creative Writing at Stanford. He is the author of three novels, Native, the Rest of the Earth, and Augusta Locke. About Augusta Locke, Publishers Weekly wrote, Against the enormous beauty of the American West depicted in Henderson's third novel, people cast small but significant shadows while tending to families as fragile as fallen leaves. Must have been a poet working on that alliteration in that review. Saturated with details of the natural West, Henderson's work etches in high relief the image of a solitary life among scenic riches. Bill has taught creative writing at Harvard University, Brown University, University of Colorado at Denver, and University of Denver. He's also a faculty member at Ashland uh, University's MFA program. Since 2001, Bill has taught creative writing at Lighthouse. In 2013, he helped develop and currently serves as the lead mentor and coordinator for the Lighthouse Book Project, an intensive two-year program for writers of book-length works, from novels to memoirs to poetry to short story collections. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Bill Henderson. Hello, thank you all for coming to see me. Oh wait, maybe you're not here for me. Um, I'm just going to read a quick in intro so we can get to Michael Andache as quickly as possible. Thank you, Mike. Um, welcome to the Writer's Studio. Um, Michael Andache, our guest tonight, is one of the world's foremost writers, as you might already know. It might actually be while you're here. He has influenced an entire generation of writers and readers born in Sri Lanka of Indian Dutch ancestry. He went to school in England and then moved to Can Canada, where many of us will be joining him in November.
I haven't asked him yet, but I'm pretty sure he'll let us stay with him. <laughs> Although he is uh, best known for his novels, he is also a poet, memoirist, and filmmaker. I typed out a list of his books and realized why it's so difficult for the rest of us to get published. He has used up most of the supply of paper. Um, here are a few of his titles. Novels, Coming Through Slaughter in the Skin of a Lion, The English Patient, winner of the Booker Prize, and made into a really small movie that nobody saw. Anil's Ghost, Div Divisadero, and The Cat's Table. Um, there's a hybrid poetry novel, um, which was his first novel, basically, which is listed as poetry, even though I just taught it as a novel, and we should all be so lucky to write such a novel, even if it is poetry. The, the um, collected works of Billy the Kid, I don't know if you guys know that book, but it's pretty amazing. Um, poetry, a bunch of books of poetry, um, worth it even just for the titles of the collections alone. The Dainty Monsters, The Man with Seven Toes, Rat Jelly, Elimination Dance, There's a Trick with a Knife I'm Learning to Do, Secular Love, The Cinnamon Peeler, Handwriting, and The Story. I think there's a novel right in those titles. Um, and he also wrote a memoir called Running in the Family, another beautiful book. I first met Mr. Andache in 1989 at a dinner with Robert Coover and Edmund White. Bob and Ed told me to read Andache, and when those two guys tell you to read something, you'd better do it. So I started reading his work, and over the past few months, I've finished reading all of his novels. Uh, it was kind of an amazing experience, reading them just straight through, one after the other. I feel as if I've been floating in time, following dreams, crossing borders. Each book left me stunned and happy mostly happy that someone's writing these books. They're so beautiful. And of course, I've been working on a novel of my own as I've been reading his novels, which was probably not a very good idea. Um, and after crying and giving up and then starting again, I found myself trying on his rhythms, and that meant hacking away at my mountain of text until it seemed to float a bit thinner, maybe more meaningful. That's what happens when you read his novels. You feel that you can lay out a series of moments and let them work their own magic. I read a quote about Andace that pretty much sums up this magic. Quote, Michael Andace's work taught me how to be at home in fragments and how to think about a big story in carefully curated vignettes. All his books are odd, all of them unfinished in the way Chopin's etudes are unfinished, no wasted gestures, no unnecessary notes. I'm very happy to welcome Michael Andace to Lighthouse, He's going to read, as Mike said, for a little bit, and then we're going to try to get some secrets out of him. So here he is, Michael Antace. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, what I'm going to do is read uh, a couple of poems and then read some small sections from uh, three of the books. Two, the two poems I'm going to read are both actually about poetry. This is called The Great Tree. Zufule died like a dragon breaking down a wall. This line composed and ribboned in cursive script by his friend the poet Yang Weizhen, whose father built a library surrounded by hundreds of plum trees. It was Zufule, almost unknown, who made the best plum flower painting of any period. One branch lifted into the wind, 
and his friend's vertical line of character, their tones of ink, wet to opaque, dark to pale, each sweep and gesture trained and various, echoing the other's art. In the high, plum-surrounded library, where young Weijian studied as a boy, a movable staircase was pulled away to ensure his solitary concentration. His great work, untrammeled, eccentric, unorthodox, no taint of the superficial, no flamboyant movement. Using at times the lifted tales of archaic script, sharing with Zufoulet his leaps and darknesses. So, I have always held you in my heart, the great 14th century poet calligrapher mourns the death of his friend. Language attacks the paper from the air. There is only a path of blossoms, no flamboyant movement. A night of smoky ink in 1361. A night without a staircase. This is called Evening. That poet you scorned for retiring when he was 40, then beginning 30 years later with the same voice and style, the crack in his life invisible. What he said in youth and approaching death, having the same breath, that precise pitch unaffected by time. What a wonder, I think now. After all those wars and eras of love he must have passed through, not one gesture altered as you wrote, as if he always slept this way beside her. What could be learned by leaving the color blue for another? I'm going to read um, a bit from... Uh, Anil's Ghost, which is a book about a young Sri Lankan woman who has studied in the West, has gone back to Sri Lanka during the, the war, and is, is a forensic anthropologist. And I'm going to read three little bits to do with her work. And I'll just read th three together. When the team reached the site at 5.30 in the morning, one or two family members would be waiting for them, and they would be present all day while Arnold and the others worked, never leaving. They spelled each other, so someone always stayed, as if to ensure that the evidence would not be lost again. This vigil for the dead, for these half-revealed forms. During the night, plastic sheeting covered the site, weighted down with stones or pieces of iron. The families knew the approximate hour the scientists would arrive. They removed the sheeting and got closer to the submerged bones until they heard the whine of the four-wheel drive in the distance. One morning, Arnel found a naked footprint in the mud, another day a petal. They would boil up tea for the forensic team. In the worst hours of the Guatemalan heat, they held up a sarape or banana leaf to provide shade. There was always the fear, double-edged, that it was their son in the pit or that it was not their son, which meant there would be further searching. 
If it became clear that the body was a stranger, then after weeks of waiting, the family would rise and leave. They would travel to other excavations in the Western Highlands. The possibility of their lost son was everywhere. One day, Anil and the rest of the team walked to a nearby river to cool off during their lunch break. On returning, they saw a woman sitting within the grave. She was on her haunches, her legs under her, as if in formal prayer, elbows in her lap, looking down at the remains of the two bodies. She had lost a husband and a brother during an abduction in this region a year earlier. Now it seemed as if the men were asleep beside each other on a mat in the afternoon. She had once been the feminine string between them, the one who brought them together. They would return from the fields and enter the hut, eat the lunch she had made and sleep for an hour. Each afternoon of the week she was part of this. There are no words Anel knows that can describe, even for just herself, the woman's face. But the grief of love in that shoulder she will not forget, still remembers. The woman rose to her feet when she heard them approach and moved back, offering them room to work. Anil entered Kinsey Road Hospital and passed a sign by the chief medical officer's door. Let conversation cease, let laughter flee. This is the place where death delights to help the living. It was printed in Latin, Sinhala, and English. Once in the laboratory, where she worked now and then in order to use better equipment, she could relax, alone in the large room. God, she loved a lab. The stools always had a slight rake, so he sat in a lean. There would always be that earnest tilt forward. On the perimeter along the walls were the bottles that held beet-colored liquids. She could walk around the table watching a body from the corner of her eye, then sit on the stool and time would be forgotten. No hunger or thirst or desire for a friend or lover's company just an awareness of someone in the distance hammering a floor, banging through ancient concrete with a mallet, as if to reach the truth. She stood against the table and it nestled into her hip bones. She slid her fingers along the dark wood to feel for any grain of sand, any chip or crumb or stickiness in her solitude. Her arms, dark as a table, no jewelry except a bangle that would click as she lay her wrist down gently. No other sound as Anil thought through the silence in front of her. These buildings were her home. In the five or six houses of her adult life, her rule and habit was always to live below her means. She had never bought a house and kept her rented apartment sparse. Though, in the present rooms in Colombo, there was a small pool cut into the floor for floating flowers. It was a luxury to her, something to confuse a thief in the dark. At night, returning from work, Anna would slip out of her sandals and stand in the shallow water, her toes among the white petals, her arms folded as she undressed the day, removing layers of events and incidents so that they would no longer be within her. She would stand there for a while, then walk, 
wet-footed to bed. In the ship's lab in the harbor one night, working alone, she cut herself badly with a surgical blade, slicing the flesh along her thumb. She poured that all over it and walked to emergency services. There were about fifteen souls sitting or lying on the long benches. Now and then a doctor strolled in, signaled for the next patient, and went off with him. She was there for more than an hour, and in the end gave up, because more and more injured were coming in off the street, and her wounds began to seem insignificant. But that wasn't why she left. A man wearing a black coat walked in and sat down among them, blood on his clothes. He remained there in silence, waiting for someone to help him, not bothering to pick up a number like the rest of them. Eventually there were three empty spaces on the bench, and he stretched out, took off his black coat, and used it as a pillow. But he couldn't sleep, and his open eyes stared across the room at her. His face was red and wet from the blood on the coat. He sat up, pulled a book out of his pocket, and began reading very fast, turning pages, taking it in quickly. He swallowed a tablet and lay down again, and this time dropped off. His circumstances and surroundings lost to him. A nurse approached him and touched him on the shoulder. When he didn't move, she kept her hand there. Anna was to remember all this very well. He got up then, pocketed the book, and touched one of the other patients and disappeared with him. He was a doctor. The nurse picked up the coat and took it away. That was when Anil left. If she couldn't tell who was who in a hospital, what chance did she have? <clears throat> Uh, this is a bit from a book called Divisadero. Um, and the second part of the book is about a French writer named Lucien Segura. And um, this is the only point in the book that he actually speaks in the first person or writes in the first person. And I was very worried about this about, you know, because I thought in the middle of you know, the book's about... 150 pages about him, but this is the only time he speaks in the first person. It's usually the third person. So I told a friend I was going to have to rewrite it. And he said, if you do that, I will hunt you down and kill you. <laughs> so these are from his archives. The large clock above the mirrors at Le Darol Bar has remained at 20 minutes past 11 for the last two weeks. The clockmaker has still not arrived, being somewhere in the south, correcting time along the small villages of the Pyrenees. He will come when he does with rags and oil and needle-fine tools. He will lift the heavy machine into his arms, be guided down the ladder by others, and place it on the marble counter of the bar, intentionally taking up the prime space of trade in the cafe. What will occur then is ceremonial. He will insist on his taut espresso and behave with a ponderous authority as if he has been summoned into this town to correct the weakening eyes of the mayor's daughter. He soaks petite flags of cloth on a so in, a, in a sauce of oil and with tweezers inserts them into the unseen depths of the giant clock. 
They are a strange breed, clockmakers, some surly and insensitive to all, save the machine about to whirr into life, some uncertain as poets about their gift. Because my stepfather, my mother's second husband, was one, I have studied their natures. He, my first clockmaker, never felt his talent as anything special. There were just a few procedures to learn. Now and then the Italians or Belgians would produce something that reversed the cause and effect. But he did not feel himself to be in any way different from the market gardener in the way he spoke about his work. And I learned the cautious and also incautious habit of my own work from him. You are given a trade, not a gift. There need not be intensity or darkness in the service of it. Still, I met no other clockmaker like him. By watching him, I learned enough to correct the pace on my own watch, but I would still take any fitting timepiece to clockmakers in Toulouse so I could study the grandeur they brought to their skill. I loved the performance of a craft, whether it is modest or mean-spirited. Yet I walk away when discussions of it begin, as if one should ask a gravedigger what brand of shovel he uses, or whether he prefers to work at noon or in moonlight. I am interested only in the care taken, and those secret rehearsals behind it, even if I do not fully understand what is taking place. The clock at Le Darol in Osh was taken over by fatigue at least once a year, and the proprietor would send me a message to let me know when the clockmaker would arrive, and I would travel to town for the procedure. Up close, once the great object was on the marble counter of the bar, he would read the smaller letters on the clock face, would wipe the appearance of mildew or foxing off the white portal of the dial, and then lift it off the mechanism. I, in order to remain close by, needed to appear humble. He insisted on a people-like authority, and when told I was a writer, or at least was known to be a writer, he would speak to me rather than the other spectators, as if we were on another professional level of existence. When it was clarified that I was a poet, my status slipped a rung or two, and he muttered some line I didn't quite hear that got a laugh somewhere to his left, a laugh guided by his laugh. The skill of writing offers little to a viewer. There is only this five-centimeter relationship between your eyes and the pen. Any skill in the divining or dreaming is invisible. Whereas a clockmaker visiting Osh removed his dark cotton jacket, rolled up his sleeves of his white shirt, and at which point I would part company from my friends and come closer to the unrolled oil skin and its slim pockets that held tools and oil capsules and his little flashlight for the machine's dungeons. Soon I was almost within the pleasure of his serious demeanor. I could imagine his even greater status in small villages along the Pyrenees. I enjoyed all of this, but I believe only in the humbleness my stepfather had, who would stop in mid-operation on hearing a song thrush walk to a window to search it out or he would pass me his essential knives to sharpen my blunt pencils. He constructed objects for us out of those wheels and dials that were no longer being used, so they'd move like half-formal animals across the dining room table. 
He was not my father, but he raised me. I learned, I suppose, a manner from him. Also that any trade or talent could be shaped discreetly, without the sparks of exaggerated drama. And yet, with all his modesty, he loved the grandeur of Victor Hugo and those slow, obedient descriptions that walk towards revolution. And he loved my mother. I saw him on the last days of his life lift that oil-scented right hand and enter his fingers into her ordered hair and rustle it free of its pins as if he had been offered velvet or the fur of a rare animal. Forever I hold that gesture. For me it was perhaps the last remembered pleasure belonging to him. It is the unspoiled core of whatever I know of love and family, and I have not been successful at the craft of it. Our shyness at embracing each other, it rarely happened, did not matter. I felt safe and comforted. There was a calm. The two clocks in the house were silent but precise, and we were safe in time. For just five years, he gave us all that. Thank you. Hello. Is this on? Can't hear it. Thank you. Um, I wondered if we could just start with, uh, with with you telling us a little bit about how you came to writing, how you passed through poetry into um, fiction, and how you think following that path affected your fiction writing. Um, I didn't begin to write until I went to university in Canada, and I'd just come from England. I'd been in school in England, been in school in Sri Lanka, then England, then came to Canada about the age of 18. And... Um, Suddenly I was in a new country, I was 18, I was going to change my life, or I thought I would have to, and uh, I began to write little poems, you know, and I had a great English teacher in my class, and that was the most important thing. And so that's when I began to write, and I never imagined writing a book, let alone living by writing, and um, so that's what happened, and then some years later, when I was writing um, the collected works of Billy the Kid, I had two books of poetry out. Um, I suddenly, halfway through that book, because it was a western in many ways, I needed to have a bit more action. You know, people behaving badly in bars and stuff like that, <laughs> or on horses. And so I, I started to write prose, and it was the first prose I'd ever written, and it was kind of very freeing. I've been kind of writing this tight poems in Billy's mind and suddenly there was I could tell jokes and you know wander off and describe a tree it was kind of heavenly and um, so that's how I began to write prose you know and I was dealing more with the problem of how do I combine all these little fragments of poems and then these prose sequences that were kind of some of them were tall stories some were something else so that's how I moved from poetry into prose, and um, at that point I did continue to write poetry, and, and 
in fact, I wrote poetry and prose up, uh, simultaneously, and then when I was writing in the skin of a line, it was such a complicated plot, you know, with several characters over 25 years, that I had to give up something, you know. So that's when I kept writing on writing prose for a long stretch. Okay, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, so you you've... You've talked about the difference between the Eastern and Western novel and how the Western novel is very organized and mm. maybe more by time, whereas um, you said if you look at um, Eastern film, it is made up of collage, it is made up of lists, and suddenly when you stand back from the lists, you begin to see a pattern of life. Right. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. It seems to me that your books are much more that Eastern Eastern idea. Yeah, I, I, don't, I didn't really realize... It was, it was or is. Um, and then I read a, a small book by Donald Ritchie called A Treatise. I can't remember the exact title. And he really talks about the difference between Eastern and Western literature. And, and one of the things he says is that, you know, that, that the logic of the Western novel, no matter how wonderful it is, is false. And for Eastern writers... Uh, um, there is there is this thing where you write these fragments, and then when you step back, you can see the, pa- the pattern which you can't see up close. And there's also the element of what he calls following the brush, where you make the gesture, and then you're not quite sure where the brush is going to go, but then you know it, it, it frees you as a writer or a painter to step into an area that you hadn't thought of prior to that. So I mean, I was thrilled by this actually because I hadn't really. It's, it's not really. It's, it seems it's a wonderful version, but I mean, I was. Um, I did not have that in my head at all. But I, I kind of felt a bit safer, you know. Um, but certainly, I am. I don't have the grand plot when I begin a novel. I don't. Ha- I don't know what's going to happen on page three, let alone. You know who's going to be there, or you know if there's going to, it's going to be taking place in World War Three or what. You know, um, so I really begin. I creep into the book. Really, I begin my books with you know an English picture began with the uh, just a, d- a description of two people talking. That's a a patient in bed and he's talking to a nurse. And I, all I had was that to begin the book. And then I had a scene where I remember I was sitting in a airport waiting for a plane that was late and I started writing a scene where Caravaggio steals a, had to steal a photograph of himself. I said, well, he's in the other book. You know, what the hell is he doing here now? This is, this is a new book. Because he appeared in, in The Skin of a Lion. So suddenly, you know, I have two stories happening and I'm drawn to both, not quite sure which way to go. So I go both ways. You know, it's like a line. When you get to the fork in the road, you take it. You know, um, so, anyway, I kept doing that, and then gradually, the, hopefully, these things are going to link up in some way. The, that idea of um, following the brush is beautiful and also really scary, I think, for a, yeah. a lot, just sort of let it go for a while. And I'm uh, sort of curious as to, as you start to build, maybe you're building lists or ideas or scenes, or at what point you can stand back and begin to see what that pattern is. You, you talk about um, suddenly you stand back from the list and you begin to see a pattern of a life. Um, is that something that comes up pretty quickly, or do you have to write for quite a while in order to begin to know what it is that you're writing about? That's the most terrifying thing. You know, is, is there a pattern? You know, is there, I mean, there's a standard thing where 
I remember uh, reading about someone who wrote the movie script of uh, Out of Africa, and he said, it's very important in the film that every scene is about the same thing. You know, it could be a big issue, but it's the same thing. You know, deceit or passion or race or whatever it is. But it's always about the same thing. They're all linked up in some way. And that sounded wonderfully calming, but I, I didn't, knew I couldn't go there. And I think, you know, for me, I mean, I'm right now in, in the middle, middle or three-quarters of the way through this book, and I'm still not sure if all these tentacles are kind of linking up or going to link up ever. Do I have to chop them off? You know, what happens? So it's a very late stage, and I think for me the editing process is one where you you take a deep breath and then, you know, well, as I said, I, I begin the book not having the the plan in my head. I don't have a plan. So I, I discover the story as I write it for a year or two. And then I just edit the hell of it for the next, you know, three years. The editing takes longer than the writing because you've got to try and see that this doesn't belong here and this, this shouldn't be here at all and this, this chapter is exactly the same as the next chapter. You know, so they are constantly kind of fine-tuning something. It's like, you know, trying to write um, you know, essentially, the way you write a poem, you just you've got all you think your poem is going to be about that, but it's really about this when you start rewriting it. And uh, so it's it's a kind of tortured thing, actually. I mean, I'm I need I saw a sign saying advanced writing. I saw it out while I was waiting. The advanced novel, narrative architecture with Ben Lerner. And I thought that's the course I want to take right now. <laughs> 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 is there any way we can get him in that class? Where the hell is he? <laughs> um, so you, you're talking in there about finding your way toward it, following the brush, and then editing it toward what it makes sense. But you also talked about, or and you also talked about, that first image that comes to mind. Um, I'm sort of curious, just um, over, over, overall, what those how those images end up playing in your books, whether they always stay there, and whether the, the um, meaning that's under underneath them ends up being something um, that drives the book. And also I'm curious about The Cat's Table, which is um, more about you yourself a little bit, uh, more obviously about you and your own, your own journey from um, home to England. Um, how you reached into that story. What, what made you at this point in your life say, that's a story I need to tell from when mm -hmm. I was 11 years old? Um, the, the first part of the question, uh, the first question about how you begin the book, I mean, I, I usually have to begin with this small image of unknown people talking to each other in a, in a, in a peculiar situation. Patient, nurse, where the hell are they? Who are they? I don't know any of that stuff. And um, and most of my books have be begin with an image such as that, uh, but that image need not be in the book eventually. In, in the silver line, it's a boy walking across a country field eating some rhubarb, you know, which has sort of disappeared. Or it might be there, I don't know anymore. Um, so, but, that, but the beginning is always a problem, you know, I mean, well, apart from the, the ending. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, the, you know, Often I end up having to rewrite the ending, the beginning, several times before it's right, because that's where you kind of lay the traps or have the 
fish hook or whatever it is that people don't see the first page and then walk away from the book. Or, but you want it to be suggestive enough to, to allow an echo on page 200 or something like that. Um, now I, I can't remember what begins in this kind of a line or um, English patient now, but it, it is certainly English patient. It was the idea of these two people talking. I didn't know who they were. And after about 15 pages, I thought, oh, well, perhaps it could be Hannah, this girl who was in the earlier book, In the Skin of a Lion. And I thought, no, no, that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea, because I tend not to like books where the same character turns up in several books, you know, like the Mickey Spillanes or all those books I read as a teenager. Um, and what I like about Dashiell Hammett is that, you know, he always has a new central character, so you never know if he's a good guy, a bad guy, or what, whereas... Even Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe, we have to sort of trust because he's been, been in seven books. So I worried about keeping that name, and then Caravaggio turns up, same problem, and I thought, but that's so, so much has happened in the war since the, the last book that they are very much new characters, that they're changed persons. So that was acceptable to me. But certainly even any of the books, I go back and rewrite the first page or two a lot. Well, most of the book I rewrite a lot, but especially the first two pages. With um, um, Cat's Table, which was, uh, I mean, I, I had written the book called Running the Family earlier on, which was about my family in Sri Lanka from, you know, after going back after 25 or 30 years to Sri Lanka and then trying to write about my family, family's bizarre ancestry and behavior. Um, and... Um, but that was also written at a time when, you know, it was before the wars broke out and the racial wars broke out. So, you know, uh, that, that sort of belonged to that era. So then I, I come to write, um, I wasn't even sure I was going to write The Cast Table, but my children said, well, how did you come to England, you know, when you were 11 years old? And I said, well, I got on a ship. And, and she said, I said, with your parents? Said, no, actually, I was sent alone. And they thought this was the most terrible behavior by my parents. And I said, no, actually, it was kind of fun, you know. Uh, and so I thought that was interesting as an idea. And, but I had no idea what I was going to do. I thought it would be all about the angst of this 11-year-old boy getting on a ship alone and traveling for 21 days to England. But in fact, once I got into it, I, I immediately started fictionalizing the whole damn thing. You know, there's on one level, it's completely fictional. None of the people named in the book or mentioned or the characters existed in my, that journey. Um, and I'm, but, I'm, but I also realize that subliminally there's a lot of that angst or that tension or that nervousness in the boy's point of view when I wrote that book. So in the process of writing that book, what did you figure out about what your childhood meant in that journey? What my childhood meant? Or, the, or just that, that move, moving to England? Um, I, I, th I thought it was going to be about me or the boy, the, the, the fictional Michael. Uh, and then I think gradually as I had this group of people in the boat, I mean the two other boys, and then also um, who were roughly the same age as me or the fictional Michael, but there were about eight people at the, at the cat's table, and they all had their own stories. And it became about 
essentially, I realized as the book went on, about two-thirds of the way through, it was coming, coming to be a book about people landing in a foreign country. You know, how do you, that, that, that process of entrance into a completely different world and how they can get there. And one is a thief, one is a so-and-so, you know. Um, and so that became interesting. So it wasn't just about the boy. It was about a whole group of people and how they would land and how they would live in the future. One of the most beautiful moments in that book, for me at least, was when he's on a book tour and he hears from, is it his cousin who's living on that island? Oh, yeah, yeah, on Bourne Island, yeah. And he, he goes out to visit her, and she talks about sitting at that window and watching those fairies go yeah. back and forth and back and forth. And that idea of, of the past and the way you sort of watching people travel, is that sort of what you're talking about, that idea that you're sort of on an island, you're always, there are people yeah. coming and catching up with you and people moving on? Right, everything had to take place on a boat or on an island. You know? <laughs> so I, I was lucky to kind of think, oh, okay, I'll, I'll end up on that island on, you know, on the west coast of Canada having left the island at the beginning of the book. Yeah. So having moved so much yourself, um, and your, your books take place all over the world, I wonder how, what, what you would think of as home at this point and how purely you can see that, or is it completely layered by all the stories you've told, by um, how far you've traveled? I don't usually look back you know, in terms of what I've done. I, I was asked to go to a university last spring to talk about um, Arnold's ghost and I had to tell them, first of all I haven't read any of these books since I wrote them uh, I mean, I, I read them a lot when I was writing them but, <laughs> you know I, I haven't gone back, so in fact what I did was, I did read Arnold's ghost again and it was very strange because it was, there was stuff I had totally forgotten there was fantastic research in there and I thought, my god, I didn't know I knew that you know <laughs> <laughs> But at that time, that was a focus. It was like, I would, when I'd finish the book, I'd read it again and again and again, just looking for any kind of quirk or wrong pacing. Mind you, I found some wrong pacing now, but at that time, there wasn't, you know. So, um, does that answer your question? I'm not sure. I have no idea what I asked. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody else a question? <laughs> I'm not really sure what we're talking about. Um, Okay, so we were talking about people being from places. Yeah. And then you were talking in some interview I read about how um, people think in, in an awful lot of books, if someone comes from a certain place or a certain type of person, and that's not what you believe. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about the idea that, well, if, if you go to any one town and all these people are from the same town and you line them up, of course they're not the same person. They're just as, as broadly... Um, um, bizarre as people mm -hmm. all the way across the world. Is that um, something that you've pursued? Well, I, you know, I, I think I get asked that this is about, uh, what's the word? Identity. Yeah. And I, I never think about identity. You know, maybe I'm too self centered to be thinking about identity <laughs> or, or not self centered. You know, um, it, it, it just seems that anyone in that book is enough of a human being and, and complex as he can be, or she be, that it's not about coming from Japan or somewhere else, you know. Uh, obviously there are kind of awkwardnesses, but and, and in the book there is a, um, there's a, 
the man who's going to be a teacher in that book, Mr. Fonseca. And I, in that story, because it's of a certain time in the 50s, I, I sort of did write a scene where he will be an alien hmm. in England. And I, I, I sort of imagine him as being an alien in the country and not staying very long and going back to Sri Lanka. But I, that, I don't think now I feel that way, you know. But maybe I'm probably wrong with you know, what goes on right now. You're almost certainly wrong. Mm. Um. Can you answer the next question? <laughs> <laughs> I have no more. The, um, okay, so we're talking about, um, I think it works well with the cat's table, with these people who um, float in and out of your stories, yeah. and, then, and then later on you catch up with them, and you don't know what's happened to them but you have your own sense of your own movement and what their movement might have been, and there's yeah. a certain tension there. Um, and then some of them just go away, and we, and we never find out what happens to them. And that's very much not a Western idea of a novel. That's more that sort of Eastern idea where things sort of happen and they move on. Is that something when you find a character, you know they're just a bit player or they're just a passing I, I, I player? I don't know when the character comes on. I don't even... I'm, ex I'm not always expecting a character and that character will come on. Like, uh, the example I can give you is a kip in um, in, in English Patient. I, you know, I was writing that scene about her playing the piano. She was in a depressed state and then two sappers come into the room uh, thundering and lightning outside. And this was not an expected entrance. It was like a Harold Pinter who the hell is this kind of thing? And uh, so then I had to think about, well, do these people stay? Well, who are they? You know, have, have a quick snack and leave, that kind of thing. But And then luckily, you know, obviously something was waiting for Kip to arrive. The whole place was mined, for God's sake. You know, so luckily he turned up and he was a sort of angel, you know. And I sort of wait for these people in a way, uh, even if... They are not on, in the radar at all. I mean, I, I think um, Garmini, the doctor in Anil's Ghost, was a surprise when he turned up. And, you know, I said, I got a great deal of affection for him and his, just his behavior in the first two or three scenes. So, and he became another kind of essential person. So I, I'm sort of waiting for people to turn up about two thirds of the way through. In books, I mean, sometimes they, they turn up and they're just useless. You know, there's bad manners or something like that. Um, but it, do, it does interest me. And, and the idea of people disappearing seems to me such a natural thing, you know. And whether people disappear and come back 10 years later and we have to rediscover them. So that there's that kind of, the kind of archaeology of, of just finding out what happened in the past but also finding out what happened to someone who disappeared for 10 years and comes back. So uh, Clara in, in The Skin of a Lion you know, turns up at the last part of the book. And we don't really find out about her, but she's still a part of the story. So I'm very interested in that kind of thing. You know, maybe it's going to be... It's not as a habit, but I just I want to allow that kind of... It's like actors performing on stage and there's a bench back there and they're just sitting there for the next act... And they come on again and sing a song. It is, it's a little tough for us as Western writers to not tie everything up. Yeah. And that's what's so beautiful about your books is that they don't. Things sort of drift in and out. And when you say you're waiting for the characters to show up, and then they might become useful, 
And then sometimes maybe they become the most important character. You said that you're sort of waiting and seeing what they're up to. Um, you might think your book's about one character. It ends up being about someone else because they're, they're the ones who have the biggest question. They're the, something. Yeah, or they, they, or they are now looking at the, the vista of the book so far with a kind of a different point of view. And you sort of realize that, in fact, you've been thinking about it's about this, but it's really about that. You know, that, that the Dr. Garmini in Anil's Ghost has a completely different perspective of what's going on in Sri Lanka from Anil and from her brother, and his brother, um, Sarath. So we have to you know, bring him into the story. Uh, and the book ends pretty much with him, really, you know, because Anil has left and something has happened to Sarath. So, um, so that is always, you know, it's like, it's a shifting platform, you know, of not just perception, but something thematic, perhaps, you know. I mean, and I don't really begin a book with any kind of sense of theme. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure what theme is. But, you know, um, you know, when people come up to you and say, I've got this great idea for a book, you, you know, oh, yeah. You know, the idea for a book usually runs out after two pages, you know. Uh, unless you have a kind of location and something, you know, perhaps. I, I, you know, this is just my point of view. I, I'm not necessarily right, okay? You are writing this down, right? These, <laughs> these are the rules. Um, okay, so um, along those lines, other things show up in your books. Like I'm thinking of um, Cooper fixing the, wa the water tower, things like They're very detailed sections about something very specific that someone's doing or something about um, painting the Buddha's eyes and mm -hmm. those things, which I just, I love those things. And I'm sort of curious as to what your process is with that. If, if, if there are things that you've always been fascinated with, if there are things that come up to you as you're doing your research, you dream them, um, and um, when it doesn't work, has it ever not worked for you? I mean. You know, we all want to, like, I'm really fascinated with a certain kind of cat, and so I'm going to put that cat cats. in my book. I don't know, I'm just thinking. Cats. Cats, or cars, or cats. or flowers. <laughs> um, cats, okay. No, just, yeah. I'm sorry, I don't even like cats. Um, yeah, um, I mean, I'm very interested. I mean, I, I, what's, someone fixing a water tower, I mean, I, I was living and have been living part of the year around, the Petaluma area, and I, I went to this place where there was a water tower, and someone said it, it was always broken or leaking or something like that. But that gave me an idea, and then I started thinking how you would do that and what kind of wood you would use and all this kind of stuff. So often that doesn't lead anywhere, you know, that kind of research. But then that, when you're writing the thing, you know, in fact, you're only using about you know, three, or small, three or four small tiny things about the kind of wood the invention of the building of the water tower is invented. And often when you're doing research, um, real research, if you, you read texts and stuff like that, that can limit you, you know, in a way. You know, um, I, I'm a, a story I've, I've told before about when I was doing writing English Patient, um, and all this stuff about bomb disposal and so forth. But the big bomb disposal scene that Kip has it's really about his nature and his irritation or his what he feels at that time when he's doing it. It's 
you know, I throw in a couple of fuses or something like that, but that's not, you know, to import this, it gives you a bit of texture, but, you know, it's really what he's thinking and he's irritated about, he's thinking about Lord Suffolk and what happened to Lord Suffolk and all this stuff. And so often that research is, you, you don't delve into it too much, sometimes it kind of limit, can limit you. And anyway, when I was working on the, the bomb disposal stuff, I, I read this incredible story about a the top bomb disposal guy in London during the war who would, would kind of just fix anything, you know, with no fear. And then they opened up a manhole because there was a bomb down there, and he went down there, and they came up screaming. And they said, oh, my God, what the, what the, what the hell is there? And he said, he said, I think I saw a rat down there. <laughs> And so they got some marks when he went down, shot the rat, and this guy went down whistling and fixed the bomb, you know. And it's, it's a great story. I was dying to use the story. And, and, but it was like a perfect little story, but it's like a one-act O. Henry story, you know. And to, to work that, push that boulder into the book would have been very difficult. Damn. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Anyone more can use it, you know, it's, it's out there. <laughs> I've got dibs on that. Um, and so it does work because it ends up being about the person. It's more and, to do with the character of the person thinking about that. Yeah. You know, even Garmin, he's a doctor, he's about, you know, not, doesn't want to get his hand dirty at, at something or other. So Obviously it's a, you want it, some detail there, though. Yeah, it's a way to have them do something that you can begin to yeah. get underneath, I guess. And I'll give another example of uh, when I was writing um, in the skin of a lion, and there's a scene with a, a cow that's caught in the ice in the river. And um, I lived next door to a farm, and this guy told me that, you know, one of my cows fell in the river. And I said, Oh, tell me, tell me about it. <laughs> and he said, Oh, so I thought, How did you get it out? And he said, Oh, it was very difficult. And then he walked away as so that was enough. <laughs> and, and actually, it was enough. You know? Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you about filmmaking. Um, they made that one little movie. Um, and you wrote the book about Walter Murch and the art of editing film. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm curious if we could talk about that for a while. You said, um, one of, a quote I read from you is, there always should be something hanging unfinished before a scene ends so that there's a reason for going to the next scene. Um, I think I learned a lot from Merch in terms of how the scenes shouldn't be too fulfilled. And I'm interested in how, if, if you were present watching him um, edit The English Patient, what that felt like watching not only, I mean, there are all these different layers from you as, as a writer. And then when you went back to writing after having observed the way that he edited, whether it changed the way you approached your scenes. I suppose I, I must have been influenced by him, but I, I like to feel I wasn't influenced by him at all. You know, because I think, um, I know I, when, when the book came out, I, 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 Anthony, Anthony and Gail read it, and he said, oh, now I'll never get him to move on any of those issues, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I think you want to feel when you're writing a book that perhaps this book can go there or there or th this way, you know. I mean, he has very strict rules, so that uh, at the beginning of The Godfather, all the central characters are there in the first scene, or the car movie that came up before that, uh, for George Lucas, from the title, all the characters are there in the first scene, you know, and then they can go anywhere after that, it doesn't matter. And, you know, here, I bring characters in page 276, 
become major characters. So I like to feel that the there's a can that can be a dangerous uh, unreliability when you're writing. Not that I, I want that unreliability myself, but perhaps by writing that way you can in fact discover something you follow the brush, you know, and I think that in that sense. But I mean Watching Merch and Mingela edit was, was I mean, I, I love the art of editing. The reason I wrote the book is because I spent so much time on editing my own stuff, my own poems and my prose that, you know, it was because I think as a writer you can learn almost more from the other arts than you do from writing. You know, whether it's dance or ballet or something. I mean, one of the things I find, if I'm stuck in a book, the best thing is to go and see some opera, you know, which is ridiculously plotted, you know. But you can think and then somehow something will click or something. That happens to me all the time when I go to a play or something, and in the dark I'm busy taking notes about my mm-hmm. own book immediately as it starts, <laughs> writing in the dark on the playbill. Um, how are we doing on time? Let me ask you one or two more questions, and then we'll open it up. I just want—I have this—I I read this thing this morning before I left. I'm reading this book by Margaret Dura, and she says this. I, I just love it because she, every time you read it, she's scolding you about something. Um, this is what she said: Writing isn't just telling stories; it's exactly the opposite. Next line is telling everyone. It's telling everything at once. Writing isn't just telling stories. It's exactly the opposite. It's telling everything at once. And, you know, it's just that anything is possible. You know, any aspect of your brain, you can't just be focused on, you know, the rhyme at this point. Hmm. Anything can occur. Everything does occur all at the same time. Yeah. Um, That was, one of your quotes was about you liked writing about things that were contained in space because it allowed you... I was thinking of um, Faulkner's, and I can't pronounce it, that county, yana, pana, la, 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 what, county... What, what um, are you talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> let, me, let me look it I, up. I like things contained in you, space. Well, you said it. <laughs> I'll find it here someplace. Um, that, that you liked... Um, well, of course, I won't be able to find it, and now I look like a fool. So that's the way it goes. Let's forget it's a simple mistake. Let's just say that we're not <laughs> going to talk about that. But it was really interesting, and it shouldn't be too hard for me to find in here since that word is really long. Um, but meanwhile, I'm going to. Um, there's your quote um, that shows up twice in De Visadero about. Um, uh, we have art so that we shall not be destroyed by the truth. And that got me thinking about um, what is the truth that you're trying not to be destroyed by, and how are you addressing that, do you think, across the arc of your work? That's better than Faulkner. That, that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that one, though. Okay. Well, have you any ideas is, about this that? This is all falling apart. <laughs> no idea. I can't answer that for you. I, um, I don't even remember who said that. Nietzsche. Nietzsche. And it shows up twice in Divisadero. Yeah, yeah. At the, in the credits at the end. Yeah. And somewhere inside the book. Yeah. I, I find that the credits page is like the last chapter of a, yeah. of a book. You know, I, I always have to sneak in something that didn't kind of 
wouldn't wouldn't be acceptable in the main novel, but there's a little clue. Um, so the the song that the, the lyrics the lyrics that who is it um, at um, Cassius's show turns out to be a song written by the guy who wrote Werewolves in, Werewolves in London. Warren Zevon. Warren Zevon. So I have uh, Warren Zevon being a friend of Cassius referred to in the credits page, which is completely false, of course. I was thinking about... Um, yeah. Thinking about <laughs> While were- I was talking? Thinking about werewolves. <laughs> I was trying not to pay attention to what you said, because I still can't find Faulkner. He's disappeared. He must have fallen on the floor. Um, I was thinking about that question about what is it that we push against or what shapes us in our, our overall vision. And, and for me, it was a certain time in my life um, that was very difficult. And now I write stories about people in um, very small people in a very large world. And they're usually dealing with some level of mortal danger, one kind or another. And that got me thinking about your books, and of course you already told me you don't know the answer to it. But um, I wondered if you were to sit with your books, if you would find that there's that one thing that sort of comes up all the time. You don't know the answer. Well, you know, I, I think obviously it's easy for somebody else to see, you know, these four or five books and say, these are exactly the same story, you know. I always think I'm writing the same story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I, I do kind of worry about it. I, I don't think I, I don't don't think I'm writing the same story. But then if I if I, I write this book I write now, I haven't talked about this book to anyone. So, so I was trying to say, well, how would you describe it? And I I start to imagine how I describe it. It would be like, yeah, you've been doing that all the time, you know. So that's a problem. So you can have to try and veer away from that, I suppose. Yeah, we all have things that we go back to, and then you think at a certain point it's just the same story over and over, but mm-hmm. of course it's not for the reader, or it's a different version of the yeah. different different way to get at what the issue is, I yeah. suppose. I mean, I wrote a poem called White Dwarfs, and, I, and then about two years ago, two years later, I started writing Coming Through Slaughter, but I, it's like I can see the connection between that poem and the story about Buddy Bolden, you know. So, I mean, I think there are, it's not it happens all the time, I think, in us. I found my quote. Ready? Yep. You said this. I didn't make it up. Um, it was great to be in a limited space um, for a book, whether it's in the villa, in the English patient, or a certain location in Sri Lanka for Anil's ghost. I often need that limited space. It's like having a house to roam around in and reinvent and have things happen in, kind of like a French farce. Doors opening, doors closing, new people arriving and disappearing, and so forth. It sounds like he talks in poetry. And that got me thinking of Faulkner, or in my own work, how I, um, I write, everything takes place in one town, mm-hmm. and it would seem like it was limiting, but it sort of gets rid of that um, other business that you have to deal with, and then you open up into the, into the characters' lives yeah. themselves. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I usually do need a kind of Location. It's only the, the villa in uh, English patient. You know, I, I came across this actually this this uh, what what the nunnery or something like that. You know, and, and unfortunately it led to an unhappy ending. I don't know if I should say this, but um, 
So I, I set the thing there, and then the book did well, and the film came out, and people started going to this place, and it turned out that this hostel run by nuns didn't have a license, and they were led away in chains. Hmm. So you're doing good with everything that you do. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I love that kind of form, like whether it's a farm in uh, um, Divisadero or the, the French house in the second part of the book or whatever. Or the ship was great in, in yeah. Cat's Table. It was perfect. You know, and I kind of spent a lot of time sort of doing research on the kind of herbs that are growing or something like that in um, Divisadero in the French section. But the ship, you know, everyone knows what a ship is. I don't have to describe a damn thing, you know. All I, I could talk about the waves being rough. That's enough, right? But <laughs> I did, the only research I did was I had a kind of outline of the ship. So this is where the scullery is or the, this thing or the, that thing. That was useful. Yeah. But much less research on that. It was like all internal as a result. You know, in the uh, villa, in the English patient, where she, she comes in from the garden, and there's the garden on the walls of the room that he's in, and there's the ceiling, and she's looking up at the sky, and there are all these sort of layers of storytelling, and there's sort of the, the Eden, but it's being placed on the walls, and it's sort of living inside it and telling stories. And then I saw the movie last week, and they put it in a, in a little um, chapel, was it? Where he's sleeping, there seems to be, there's an altar... It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder what you thought about that. That really stuck, struck me as, as, a, as a, probably a pretty good choice, but boy, did I miss that um, yeah. bower. I, I didn't think about that when I saw that scene, though. Okay. But I, I know you should it, check it out. It's good. One, one, funny thing, one funny thing happened, though. I remember when um, I'd done a reading, I think in Colorado, uh, maybe Boulder, definitely not here. Uh, and I, uh, I was reading from the book before it came out, and I read the bit where Kip hoists the old historian up mm. in, in, so he can see the murals and all this stuff and, and in Arezzo. And at the end of the reading, this man who's a, 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 a specialist in, in, in art said, you know, why is he pulling this guy all the way up there? Because this mural you're describing is only about three feet off the floor. <laughs> Now, it was too late to change, switch murals for my book. So I thought, oh, okay, too bad. Then I thought, later on, when he sees the movie and the thing is up there, he'll say to himself, oh, I was wrong after all. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that gentleman isn't here tonight. <laughs> I, think he, I think he just got up and stormed out. He just left. <laughs> Um, let's open it up to questions from the audience. Is that good? Does anyone have a question? Are you all stunned and overheated? Can we have more light on the audience? We, we have no idea that there's even anyone out there. I have a question. Is this on? Uh, there you are. Yeah. Um, so you do research. How much after you do your research do you just make stuff up? I heard a talk once with uh, Edward P. Jones, who wrote this marvelous oh, yeah. novel, The Known yeah. World. That's and, fantastic. And when people asked him about it, there was a woman in the audience who particularly wanted him to talk about the research he did. He said, I made it up. Yeah. I made up the whole thing. And she pestered him about it. And he said, I just made it up. So I just wondered how much of what you write you just made up. 
Yeah, well, first of all, that, that essay by him about that is a fan, one of the great essays about writing, I think. The one Edward P. Jones wrote about writing the known world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 do, I do both. I mean, I don't want to do too much research, as I said, you know, but um, I obviously want to get basic things, you know, right, but just basic things. But I, I need the kind of space to kind of invent, you know. Sometimes I was looking for a certain kind of um, photographer in the tunnels in Toronto in, in the skin of a line, and I was furious that I couldn't find the photographs. And then that immediately freed me to, you know, in, invent the kind of photographs. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's how it works, really. I, I don't, I tend to do the research and the writing simultaneously. I don't do research for, you know, not like John Milton, where he researches the whole damn book beforehand and then decides to write it ten years later. You know, I, I kind of, I do kind of half the thing about the building of the bridge and then I'm, I'm writing it simultaneously, which may or may not be a good idea. Okay? Thank you. Hi. How would you describe your ideal reader? How would I describe my ideal reader? I haven't thought about the ideal reader yet. Um, or who are you thinking about? Who, you who am I speaking to? Who are you thinking about or writing for? Perhaps? Someone probably a bit smarter than me. You know, not a lot. No, <laughs> um, so could be a lot smarter than me. I, I I don't. I want to be smarter, <laughs> smarter when I'm writing the book than I am, you know. So I, I'm trying to kind of be better. That's all. I, it's an odd thing to say, but I, I I don't really have someone in mind specifically. I will think. I remember when I was writing uh, coming through Strada, there was a, a friend of mine who I argued with about jazz a lot, and I would intentionally say things that which I knew would irritate him. You know, um, but that was the only time I remember specifically going after a friend of mine <laughs> in a book. But I, I don't really have an ideal reader. Um, sorry, I, but I'll I'll think on that one. Thank you. Hi. I don't have so much of a question, but wanted to actually say thank you. Um, about twenty-four or so years ago, I joined the Peace Corps and I was going to be sent to Eastern Europe. And uh, at the very last minute, they said, hey, do you want to go to Sri Lanka? And my mom sent me, running in the family, and um, I had been doing all this research about Sri Lanka. You know, there's big bugs and snakes, and you eat with your hands, and there's no toilet paper and all this crazy stuff, right? And that book... um, really personalized this place that was really so foreign and so far away, and it convinced me to go. And um, so and I, I went, and I ended up marrying a Sri Lankan guy. And uh, now we have two Sri Lankan kids, or Sri Lankan American kids, who have come to this school. And uh, it has been... S- such an influential experience for me. Mm-hmm. And listening to you speak about a read from Anil's Ghost was so powerful because we, we were there uh, as a family 
mm -hmm. uh, after, right after the, the war. I mean, we've been there several times, of course, but after the war ended and seeing what that country looked like and knowing the deep pain of that country and, and listening to your... Mm -hmm. I'd read Anil's Ghost prior to the, the end of the war, and it's so moving, and it's so nice to listen to you speak because I, li I read your words, and you seem like a pretty nice guy. So, <laughs> so really, just honestly, thanks. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. My ideal reader. <laughs> Hi. Um, I was wondering about the the second poem you you read. Um, was there a story behind that? I thought that was just very interesting when you talked about the, you know, he was oh, 40 and then he stops and then he yeah. starts again. So I was just really curious. I, I, I don't remember who the poet was, but I was reading some guzzles. And it was a poet who had written these poems and had stopped writing and then X number of years later started writing and there was absolutely no difference in style or line. And I just... It was a case of, this is too much, and then sort of admiring it later on. Um, being an author whose work was um, turned into a screenplay, I was wondering if, um, it seems like there's a certain sense in which um, your story is being borrowed um, and kind of morphed into the same story but with different elements to um, achieve the same goal. I was wondering if there were ever parts for you as an author that it was difficult to give up the novel story um, when it was adapted for a screenplay, and if there were, or if that was just an easy transition for you, recognizing that the two different mediums of storytelling required um, a different voice. Yeah, I, I, I sort of realized that to make a film out of a, a book, you have to kind of change the thing. You have to deconstruct it completely and then almost rebuild the thing again in, with the same characters or same locations, perhaps. And, you know, I mean, Mingela talked to me a lot about that beforehand. I mean, and he said, for instance, you know, uh, only one person can have a flashback in the movie. You know, if, if more than one person has a flashback, it's going to be utterly confusing to people. And all your characters have flashbacks in your book. You know, I said, oh, okay. And, and that, that seemed reasonable. And, and the, I mean, there, there are some rules about any art form, not so much with books, but in films, certainly, you know, that things have to be more chronological. Like, the, for instance, in the book, the meetings between Catherine and Almashi are not chronological. You know, the, certain things um, spark an idea and they'll remember the tangerine or the bed or this or that, but not in any specific order. For the filmmaker, Mingela had to write it Every scene is chronological, from A to Z, you know. So it's, it's um, he, he has a much stricter set of rules to work with, you know. The audience has to know exactly where we are in a few seconds. So the lights or the uh, emphasis on certain lights or colors have to do that for you as well. It's not something I would be interested in doing myself. You know, I, I wouldn't want to kind of try and write a screenplay or anything like that, but... Um, I sort of respected that, you know, in him. Thank you. Thank you. 
I was sort of curious. That got me thinking about one of the things you said about uh, in one of these quotes I was reading was how you felt you could get um, um, closer to the truth writing fiction than writing nonfiction. Mm. And that's something that we talk about with students all the time when they're trying to decide whether they should write a memoir or, or, a, or a work of fiction. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you think um, that functions? I think it, you were talking about the sort of you know po- poems and how they sort of those those moments of beauty get at I think something that's more. Mm. Um, Again, I can't remember me ever saying this thing, but um, <laughs> I'll find it. Uh, no, no, don't, don't, don't find it. Don't find it. Um, well, I just think that, you know, writing can kind of create a situation. Fiction can create a situation, and by the emphasis, it becomes, if it's, it can be, because it's more, it can be more suggestive and not finite, yeah. the, the reader or the viewer then brings himself or herself into the story, and therefore it means more to that person. I think that's right. No, that's not right. <laughs> Let me try something else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to ask a question? Yeah, th- thank you. Uh, so we, talk, we heard you speak a little bit about the difference between, between the Eastern and the Western novel, and it just occurred to me that we don't know where you learned about the Eastern novel. Like, I assume it could be in Sri Lanka, yeah. but it might not be, and could Sri Lanka at that very young age have affected your understanding of what story is? I think so. Yeah, that's a good, interesting question, unlike the earlier one from... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, When I grew up, I certainly did not read any Eastern novels when I was in Sri Lanka. I left at the age of 11. I hardly read any novels, I think, apart from what I had to at school. Uh, But I've said before that the kind of... The, the only the real literature in Sri Lanka was conversation at the dinner table, where everyone was lying, you know. So uh, and so, some scandal had come in, and then that person would defend himself, you know, saying I was not with her that evening, and then somebody else, would, more people were chiming in. So it was a fantastic three-ring circus of conversation. Those were what stories were to me, you know. Um, where do you go from there? So, I, 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 but I think there is a kind of sense of, as, as a kid, I had this sense of, I take that piece of information, that piece of information, and then I have to kind of essentially collage it, which is, seems to me a very authentic form of art or writing, you know. Um, so I think that's what must have affected me in some way, or that I was drawn to certain books or writers that had that kind of similar sense of, skittering off or coming back later on and retelling the story in a different way. You know, um, so I think that's where I got it from, not from a thesis or... I mean, uh, the book I read by uh, Donald Ritchie was only... I read only about two or three years ago. I was just knocked out by it. But he's, Ritchie was a very famous uh, American who lived in Japan most of his life, and he... You, he's one of the great critics on fil- Japanese film, for instance, you know, and has written beautiful books about Japan. I am sort of curious if it comes a little bit from writing poetry and like put, putting together a book of poetry versus putting together a novel and how you switched over 
with Billy the Kid mm-hmm. um, until it became sort of half and half. And then right. you find your way drifting into the, to some of those scenes. Have you guys read this book? Some of the scenes are just a page or two long, and they're absolutely indelible. Mm-hmm. Um, if when you got to the point of writing The English Patient, and that became such a, a big hit, um, did that did becoming that popular um, scare you or, or um, alter the way that you thought about what you were writing then? I, I was very lucky because by the time The English Patient became The English Patient, um, I was about halfway through Anil's Ghost, and I was in Guatemala doing research there with this a man, wonderful man named Clyde Snow, who was a forensic anthropologist. And uh, so, I mean, it was it was I was in that universe as opposed to the universe of the popularity of the, of the film. Um, and, and that was that was an example of research. I, I asked Clyde Snow who. I, I met him in Sri Lanka. I met him all over the place. Um, and, um, and I went around with him. And I said, do you mind reading the book when I finished it so you can correct anything that seems to be wrong? So he said, I've got about 143 small things to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of research, that, you know, research, post-research is very obviously very, very important. Yeah, I, having read across all the books now, um, it, it just feels like it's just the way that you think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that you were trying to impose or that you yeah. changed along the way. There are all these beautiful things that swirl around. People cross each other. Images come back. People, I'm always shocked by, like, reading part of one of your books for a while. And it's like, where did this person come from? It's probably one of those people who drops in and then... Um, and then it be, all begins to make sense. You know, it all sort of catches up. It's really beautiful. If you, if you haven't heard of this writer, you might want to read some of his books. Should we take one, one more question? Yeah, one more question. Okay. Um, I just wondered, you mentioned earlier sometimes when uh, you're trying to tease out a problem or you're overwhelmed with thoughts, you mentioned opera as something that you either relax to or find inspiring. And I just wondered what kind of art forms do you like, what inspires you? Um, is it jazz? You, you seem to like the collage idea, so I just wondered what other kinds of art forms. Definitely a collage, and, and well, I, mean, I, love, I love the visual arts, and um, film is almost, while it's completely different to books, it's a bit similar. You know, you need a, almost a non-verbal thing. So music is incredible. And, you know, right now, what's that? this if I'm taking a little break from what I'm working on for 10 minutes, I'll listen to some complicated piece of music because I think my book is too complicated. Maybe that has a little form I could use. You know, but I'd, I'd never listen to music when I'm actually writing. Um, but it doesn't have to be opera. Um, definitely jazz was very important to me You know, when I was... Uh, when it still is, I think, you know. That's actually what I was wondering, yeah. is if you like jazz. Because describing your, your work made me think, I wonder if he likes jazz. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the answer to everything. Everything. Um, should we stop now? Sure, if you, if you have um, to. Michael's going to sign, yeah, I'm in charge. Um, going to sign books out in the lobby, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you.
Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.